today we're wrapping it up. We're wrapping up this study on the Holy Spirit, and I'm excited about it because it's kind of like this full circle moment, if you will. The first week we talked about who the Holy Spirit is and who He's not, and we did a little introduction about who He is and what He does, um, how He functions as a part of the Godhead, the Trinity. And we looked at that, and it was a beautiful week. And then the last week, we talked about his role in salvation. We talked about him being the agent of salvation. And what God purposed, Christ accomplished, and the Spirit applies to our lives. And we've had a number of salvations um, take place over the last couple of weeks. Praise God. Can we praise God for that? Amen. So... He has just been, he's been, and that's just evidence about what happens when you don't leave the Holy Spirit out of what's happening here. We cannot leave the Holy Spirit out of this thing. And so today we're talking about life in the Spirit, life in the Spirit. So this is a message really for the believer first. This is for those of us who have received salvation, who have had salvation given to us and applied to our hearts by the Holy Spirit, first, this message is for us, but also if you're here and you're, you're not a Christian yet, and you are still aimless, aimlessly wandering through life, trying to figure it out, and the Holy Spirit is here this morning pursuing you, this message still is for you, and I believe the Spirit will speak to you as well. But for the believer, we're looking at life in the Spirit this morning. So if you do have a Bible, we're in Galatians 5. Galatians chapter 5. And we're not going to be doing a lot of jumping out of here today. We're actually going to be in Galatians 5 for the, for the duration of this message. Galatians 5, this is a book written to believers. Paul is writing to this church and he's encouraging them. It's a beautiful passage. Chapter 5 of Galatians. When you are there, say amen. amen. Galatians 5. We're going to look at verses 16 through 25, if you would. But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other, to keep you from doing the things you want to do. How relatable is that verse for a Christian? But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. Now the works of the flesh are evident, and he lists them here. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, 
peace, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we, here it is, live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. And all God's people said amen. Galatians 5, the whole chapter, really begins with the reality of salvation. Look at Galatians 5, verse 1. I think I have it here. For freedom, Christ has set us free. And then look at verse 13. For you are called to freedom, brothers. It's important to note this. So I want to actually show you something here that's pretty spectacular about this text, these texts. Namely, that we have been set free to freedom. We have been set free to freedom. Now, I think most Christians and most people believe that Jesus saves you from something. Right? We agree. Jesus saves you from something, but I think few of us grasp that he also saves us to something. Like the gospel isn't that Jesus is saving you from sin and then that's it, full stop. That's not the gospel. The gospel is that he is saving you from sin and death, but he's also bringing you into new life and freedom. So we have to understand that as a believer from the beginning, that this isn't just the being saved from something life. This is a God is, Jesus is saving me from something into something. How beautiful is that? We looked last week that at salvation, there is conviction, there is regeneration, there is baptism into the family of God. So you're not just saved from sin and death and judgment, but you were saved into the very family of God. Now that we are saved through the Holy Spirit drawing us and applying the gift of salvation, we are now instructed and empowered to live in the Spirit. And that's where we fall short in our theology today. When I speak with people or when I talk with people, where I see us really falling short is we're telling people and leading people to salvation where they're saved from their sins and they are saved from death and they're saved from judgment and then we leave them there and we don't take them any further. We don't bring them any further. We don't bring them to the full end of the gospel message. Jesus didn't come and die on the cross just to save you from sin or just to save you from death or just to save you from judgment. 
He came and he died on the cross and he rose from the grave to save you from sin and death and judgment, but he came to save you into the family of God so that you and I could live the rest of our days into eternity in the Spirit. Following God, obeying God's Word, living in step with His Spirit that goes a life in contrast to what the world's life looks like. We have to understand that, church. He didn't save you and then just full stop right there the moment you have the chains broken off. He broke the chains off so that you can step into something more beautiful, more fulfilling, something that's got blessings and life and fruit, like the scripture says. So let's look at our passages today. Break it down together. Let's look at the first two verses, if you would. But I say, there's going to be four verbs today that you're going to see in this passage. Paul instructs these people to do. Four verbs. But I say, here's the first one, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. Now, a couple of things to point out here. Number one, there are, in you and I right now, two opposing forces. And you feel it every day, don't you? Currently in our lives, in my life and in your life, there are two opposing forces. Now, that's only true if you're a Christian. Because if you're not a Christian, there is no two opposing forces. There's just one force leading your life. But if you're a believer, there are two opposing forces in your life every single day. One is spirit, the Holy Spirit. That is sealed in your heart. When you confess and submit your life to Jesus, the Spirit has sealed you. That's scriptural. That's doctrine. I think a lot of people live in fear that you can lose your salvation. But the Spirit and the Word of God say that when you submit your life to Christ, truly, the Spirit seals you and keeps you. You can't fall in and out of salvation. So the one opposing force is the Spirit. Then you have your flesh. And this is a term that's used a lot in church. It's used in the Bible. It's used by people. And we hear that term, flesh, and we don't fully understand what it means. Let me explain that to you. Between this moment of conversion, when you're saved, and the moment of glorification, when you leave this earth and you are perfect and sinless, the Holy Spirit begins to move us forward into more and more and more Christ-likeness every day. It's a process. It's a process called, here's a big word for you, sanctification. All of our discipleship training students, your, your bells just went off in your head. From the moment of conversion till the moment you take your last breath on this earth and you are glorified, perfect, there is a process that is taking place where the Holy Spirit is 
transforming you and moving you and shaping you into more and more Christ-likeness. That's why a lot of young, brand new believers tend to get frustrated when they're just saved. It's like, man, they are ready to go. And they're ready to like know the Bible and they want to know everything. And they're like, they're, but it's a process. That's why people who have been saved for many, many, many years, you look at their life and it's taken a long time. It's taken time for them to become who they are today because of that sanctification process. It's a process. So in between that process, there are two opposing forces within you. Now, what is the flesh? The flesh, it's those areas of your heart, those areas of your life, the areas of your mind that still desire the things that are not of God. Here's what the Bible just said. At war in you, and at war in me right now are the spirit and the flesh, and they are opposed to one another. The goal of the spirit is not the goal of the flesh. And where the spirit is taking you is not where your flesh is taking you. So let's just, let's just be real. That sounds exhausting. Does it not? Any Christians in here willing to raise your hand and say, yeah, life as a believer is exhausting sometimes. I find myself being pulled and pushed in two different directions. I have the spirit who is pushing me into more Christ-likeness, but I have my flesh trying to keep me in the ways where I used to live, where I used to be, tempting me, enticing me. And then you find yourself in this place of tug of war, and then you, you're exhausted or you don't know what to do, or you're confused, or some people come to a place where they give up altogether. Now, the spirit and the flesh both promise the same thing. The spirit and the flesh are promising the same thing, but only one can deliver on its promise. So according to the text, what is the promise? What is the promise here? The promise is freedom. The spirit and the flesh are promising freedom. So the spirit promise, the spirit's promise is, hey, let's go to freedom. We're headed towards freedom. We're walking towards freedom. And the whole time the flesh is saying, yeah, let's, let's, let's go to freedom. Let's head towards freedom. Let's walk towards freedom. But one is a mirage. You know what a mirage is? You live in the desert. We want water so bad, you look at the horizon line long enough, you begin to see water. That's what the flesh does. The flesh is promising freedom. The flesh is promising water. The flesh is promising satisfaction. The Spirit's making the same promise, but only one can come through on that promise. The flesh's promises are a mirage. I love what the scripture says. If you walk in the spirit, you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. Period. Period. So now, that's a pretty big verse. If we walk by the spirit, we won't do that. 
If we walk by the Spirit, we won't gratify those, those desires. If we walk by the Spirit, we will not walk towards the mirage, but rather walk towards true freedom. Now look at verse 18. But if you were led by the Spirit, there's the second verb. What was the first verb? If you walk by the Spirit. The second one Paul uses is now if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. So now we're not only walking with the Spirit, but we're being led by the Spirit. So under the law is believing, listen to this, because I think a lot of people live in this, live in this umbrella today. And I, full transparency, find myself living within this umbrella from time to time. But under the law is believing that certain actions creates affection in God's heart towards you. That's what living under the law means. Living under the law means that you have this concept and you have this idea that if you do certain things, that you will move God's heart towards you and that he'll be happy with you and he'll be pleased with you and he'll accept you as long as you're doing those certain things. That's seeking the law for salvation rather than trusting in Christ for salvation. The Bible just said, if you're following the Spirit, you are not going to be under the law. So how can he say, but if you're led by the Spirit, you're not under the law? How can he say that? Because the law is about external realities. The law is about external realities, and the Spirit is about internal realities. The law says you act this way, don't act this way, go these places, don't go to these places. The heart, when it's transformed, the heart, when it's transformed, goes, I want what God wants. I want to follow where God wants me to go. I don't want to do the things that bother God. You notice the difference? Living under the law is just like, man, I do this, don't do that. Go here, don't go there. Touch this, don't touch this. Say this, don't say this. But a person who's received salvation, the Spirit has transformed your heart. Your heart's desire is, I want to do what God wants me to do. I want what God wants. I don't want to do what bothers God. When you're being led by the Spirit, you will not go under the law because legalism is impossible when you're following the Spirit. His concern is the heart. Now, he is going to help us on what the works of the flesh are and what the gifts or fruit of the Spirit are. So let's look at verse 19 through 21. Now the works of the flesh are evident, he says. Now I want to show you what the works of the flesh are, because he breaks them down into categories. He lists them out specifically, but they're actually broken down into categories. He says the works of the flesh are evident. In other words, what is this? This is someone who has no two opposing forces. Their life is being led and they're walking in the flesh. 
Christ has not, Christ's finished work has not been applied to your life. You're not saved. You're outside of the family of God still. A person who is in the flesh, the works, their life is led and made up of these things. So look what he says. Number one, sexuality. He says the works of the flesh are evident. It says sexual immorality, impurity, and sensuality. Those first three, sexuality. So let's chat about these things, if you would let me. Let's get uncomfortable, if you will. Right? If we're not going to talk about it in our homes, we've got to talk about it in church. We can't let TV and movies teach us about these things. Let's talk about it. Because our culture has lost its mind. You agree? I believe that we live in a country that idolizes and worships sexuality. Would you agree with that? In all shapes and forms and colors. A couple of things as a precursor. You can tell it's like uncomfortable, right? Like in here already. Let's start with this. Sex is God's idea. It's not the world's idea. The world didn't create it. God did. And he created it for a purpose. And with a purpose. You read Genesis 1 and 2. Read Genesis 1 and 2. Sex is not a bad thing. Sex is not a bad thing. It's a thing to be celebrated in, rejoiced in, and participated in. Here's the deal. It's unbelievably powerful. So God framed it up for us. The scripture says that sexual sin is the only sin that damages that person's outside of the body. Temple. Now here's what has happened. All of us are born broken because of sin. Amen? And we have a skewed view of sexuality that has, in this culture in particular, has us chasing a pipe dream. We have set sex so high up on our worldview that it is going to be impossible for sex to ever live up to what it's promising. The number one addiction in millennial and Gen Z people. It's not drugs. It's not alcohol. It's not, it's not eating. It's porn addiction. We have set it so high up on our worldview. Trusting in sex to fulfill our needs. To lead our lives. Satisfy everything that I am desiring. It's impossible to come through on its promise. We have now gone to a place where it's tied to our personhood and our identity. I'm no longer who God made me to be. I am identifying with my sexuality. It's the day and age that we're living in. 
That's not how God framed it up. That's not how God framed it up at all. It has been tied to the fullness of life. If you're going out and sleeping around and hooking up and doing these things, you are a really awesome person. Your life will be fulfilled. Before you get married, you need to test drive before you buy. That's what they tell people. We have associated sexuality with the fullness of life. But what did God do in the beginning? God put sex within the confines of a marriage, within this beautiful thing called a covenant. You know, God makes covenants with his people. And so God said, when there's a covenant made between a man and a woman, there's this beautiful thing that takes place called intimacy. I was listening to an old preacher last night on, on my phone. I was watching these clips of him preaching. I'm talking, like, this guy is, he's like four or five breaths away from seeing the Lord. And he's speaking to a church of like two or 3,000 people that are like, never mind, they're younger. And the whole worship set apparently has gone on and, and they've done the songs and they've done the, you know, introductions, and they've done all that stuff. And he's preached for a while, you could tell. And the whole time the worship was going on and the whole time he's preaching, you see like camera flashes going off. And he stops, and he just, he looks at the lead pastor, he says, how much authority do I have in this church right now? And he looks at the whole church, he says, he says, I have a very special relationship with my wife. And he said, there is this thing called intimacy that is shared between me and her. When no one gets to be around, no one gets to watch, no one gets to see, he said, how would it make you feel if you, within the confines of your marriage, were having an intimate moment and there were cameras flashing and going off watching you? He's like, why don't we treat our relationship with God the same way? Because what we do in here is so intimate with God. Your, reflect, the, the, your marriage with your spouse is a reflection of God's relationship with the humanity. What is Jesus coming back for? His what? What if we stopped viewing sex as a means of satisfying our soul and seeing our relationship with God as the framework for how we view our sexuality? Our intimacy with God is reflected in our sexuality within the confines of marriage in a way that honors God, pleases God. Let's move on. The second thing works in the flesh, religion. He said, idolatry and sorcery. Now, I don't believe we have a big witchcraft and warlock problem here, but that stuff is real. 
and there is an evil spirit attached. You ready? I'm just going to say this. There are evil spirits attached to superstitions and folklores. Oh, but it's innocent. It's nothing. No. Basically, what idolatry and sorcery is, is, is when we are setting something up as God that is not God. This is then trying through magic or through some other means of, um, you know, imitation or copy of works, trying to imitate and, and, and manufacture the works of the Holy Spirit. What is the biggest thing that we are seeing in our culture right now that's sort of tied to this right here. People are in love with things like zodiac signs. And we've stopped trusting in God for the answers of our life and we start looking towards, well, what is the stars saying? What are the moon? What is the moon saying? What is this saying? Can I just tell you something? The stars and the moon are too busy worshiping God. They're not worried about what you're going to eat for breakfast today or what you should wear or who you should, you know, how you should treat someone or where you should and shouldn't go. The Bible says that creation is too busy worshiping God. As creation is worshiping God, his children have turned to worshiping his creation. How about superstitions, folklore? Oh, it's innocent. It's nothing. No, it's a work of the flesh. How about the third thing? Attitudes of the flesh. He said there's enmity, strife, jealousy. Enmity is like ill will or hostility. So an attitude of hostility is a mark of the flesh. So I can, I don't know about you, but I can physically feel when I'm in the flesh. Have you ever just had something like go wrong and just you feel yourself being hostile? So this leads to strife, and strife is just antagonism. And if you're feeling hostile, you're feeling ill will towards something, aren't you being a bit antagonistic? Absolutely, absolutely you are. Which all this leads to jealousy. Here's the fourth one. Here's the results of the attitudes of the flesh. Fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy. It's what he's listed out here. It all goes back to these fleshly attitudes that have brought about fleshly realities. Lashing out, rivalries, divisions. How about this fifth one? Addictions. Right after envy, he says drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. Now, I need to flesh some things out here for you. Okay? When it says drunkenness, orgies, those two words in the Greek are actually tied together. So don't think orgies belongs in the sexual immorality category, okay? Because it doesn't. It belongs down here. So basically what he's saying is, is a giving of myself over to something. I'm giving myself over to something. And he has here listed drunkenness. So drunkenness and orgies go together. And it's a, it's a, I'm going to participate in this. I'm going to give myself to this 
Because in doing so, I'm going to find peace for just a little while. I'm going to give in to this and I'm going to participate in this because it's going to satisfy me for just a while. I'm going to find rest for just a little while. I'm going to find release for my soul for just a little while. I'm going to give myself to it in hopes of finding just a moment or two of peace. Just a moment of happiness. Again, that takes us back to that mirage. An empty promise that cannot come through for you. It doesn't work. Now he's talking about addictions here. Now I want you to notice he doesn't put like wine out there by itself. What did he say? Drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. Things like these. So anything you would give yourself fully to in hopes of bringing fullness of life rather than Jesus really is, could be tied into this moment. So this might sting some, but could food fit in there? Could your sort of image to the world fit in there? How, you, how do you present yourself to the world on social media before you leave your house? You're just obsessed with how you look. Food is a pretty spectacular thing if you do it right. But what about, what about other good things? I think you could put anything there. He says, I warn you if I have, as I've warned you before. If you give yourself over to something, he's what he's saying here. If you give yourself over to something other than Jesus to find fullness of life, you will not be walking in the kingdom of God. So let's go to verse 22. Because that's the works of the flesh. Now let's look at the fruit of the Spirit. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, kindness, patience, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. Okay. Now it's important we understand something right here. Fruit is Singular, not plural. Do not skip over that. It's singular. It's not plural. Listen, listen. If it's plural, then you and I can play this game that's not really spirit-driven where we sit back and say, oh, well, I'm good at this one, but I'm not good at that one. Well, I have that fruit, but I don't have that fruit. That's a dangerous game to play, and that's not a spirit-driven thing to be saying. That's not the point of this text. He's saying, here's the works of the flesh, but here is the fruit of the Spirit. The point of the text and the point of what the Holy Spirit of God is doing in us is, is transformation motivated by love that occurs in our life holistically. In other words, the Holy Spirit does all of this, not just some. I think we get this, the fruits of the Spirit tried to tie in with the gifts of the Spirit. The gifts of the Spirit are given to each one accordingly and, and individually, but the fruit of the Spirit, every one of God's children should have this. And it's not a, well, I have patience, but I don't have faithfulness. I have gentleness, but I don't have kindness. That makes no sense. 
I have peace, but I don't have love. Let me just say this. If you don't have love, you don't have any of those things. Surely if we just kind of flesh this out, you could see how absurd it is to say that we're growing in some of these, but not the others. They grow together. They grow together. Now, I always want to draw your attention to this repeatedly. Do you see the offer for you in Jesus? Do you see the offer for you? Because the the text says, here are the motives of the flesh. Here's what the flesh brings. Here's how they view sex. It's a broken view of sex. Here's how they view religion. It's a broken view of religion. Here are their attitudes. And those attitudes will pour out in results that can lead to addiction. And it can lead to finding fulfillment in other things. But that's not what the Spirit is offering. The Spirit is offering Jesus' love, Jesus' joy, His peace, His patience, His kindness, His goodness and gentleness, His self-control, and His faithfulness. That's what He's offering for you and holistically growing in all of us. So then how do you crucify the flesh? Did you see that in the text? And those who belong to Christ have crucified the flesh with its passions and its desires. So how do you do that? How do you crucify the flesh? Because I believe that there are people in this room today who are weary and who are burdened. And you stay up and it crosses your mind, man, I feel like I'm still in the flesh and I'm trying to walk with the Spirit and be led by the Spirit. And there's just this war and sometimes this side wins and sometimes this side wins. You ever feel like that? And I just want to be so on board and, and, and fully on this side with the Spirit. How do I crucify, crucify the flesh? You turn your eyes to Jesus. You fix your eyes towards heaven and look upon Jesus every day. Every day. Because can I tell you something? The thing that your flesh struggles with will show up tomorrow morning. The thing that you are, it, it just seems to have sort of a grip on you. And like it knows where you're going to be and it knows where to find you. And you're just trying to run from it. Can I just say that you're not going to avoid it. But you can turn your eyes towards Jesus. You can't avoid it. But you can fix your eyes towards heaven. What, what does that look like though? That may mean that some of us may need to stop putting our eyes towards this. And start saying, no, you know what? I've got to turn my eyes toward Jesus today. I'm so, here, full transparent. I am the most guilty one in here. The moment I wake up in the morning, the first thing I grab is this right here. Anyone else want to be honest with me in the house? Sure, thank you. We're not alone. We're just broken people trying to live for the Lord, amen? First thing I grab right here. How convicting is it when the Spirit says, hey, what if you didn't grab that today? But instead, when you open your eyes, you thank me for allowing your eyes to be open. What if you just kind of get up and walk around your house and go pick your son up from his crib and play with him? Kiss your wife, good morning. Fix your eyes on Jesus. 
What if when you walk into the office tomorrow, that person that really tests your patience and really gets your kindness meter sort of dropping, you sort of turn away for a moment and say, Lord, how do you see that person? You love that person. Maybe they need some love. Maybe they need a hug. Christmas is coming up. It's always a good excuse to give someone a hug. What if you just start fixing your eyes towards Jesus? What if whenever you're at home and you're tired and you just had a long day, an exhausting day, and it's like, what if you just didn't turn the TV on, but instead you guys went for like a walk and just talked or made dinner and just sat? Just fix your eyes on the Lord. Turn your eyes towards Jesus. Meanwhile, if you have struggles, then you need to build out some defenses against those things. And then you need to heap on to the fire of your life logs so that the spirit is just burning. Look at the last part. If you live by the spirit, there's the third verb. Let us also keep in step with the spirit. Fourth one. Four verbs. Walk by the Spirit. You're led by the Spirit. You live by the Spirit. You keep in step with the Spirit. So how do you do this? How do I do that? How do I do that? I'm closing right now. How do I do that? How do I walk by the Spirit, be led by the Spirit? How do I live by the Spirit? How do I walk in step with the Spirit? How do I do that? Well, I think I have to do some cultural deconstruction here, okay? I think our culture is getting much more hostile. But for now, culture has no problem with you being a person of faith as long as you keep that trash in your house. Right? You keep it in your mind. I don't have a problem with you being a Christian. You just don't, you don't bring your Christianity into, any, into anywhere else except your house. You keep it in your mind. You keep it in your heart. It has no bearing on any other part of your life. That is called the privatization of faith. It's fine for you to have faith, they say. But your faith only belongs on Sunday morning and Wednesday nights. That's what they tell you. Has no place in work, no place in the neighborhood, no place in your hobbies. So what ends up happening? What ends up happening is faith becomes just a part of your private affairs. So when you buy into that, here's what happens. Watch this. Here's what happens. When you buy into that, you have compartmentalized your life to where the Holy Spirit only gets his hour on Sunday and his hour on Wednesday night. But he doesn't get any other parts of you or your life. So how do you keep in step with the Spirit? You just walk with the Spirit. Everything you do. Everywhere you are, no matter where you go, no matter who you're with, you follow the lead of the Spirit. You live in the Spirit. Where people, we are people who see everything in the world through the lens of the gospel of Jesus Christ. So we can't go out into the world and then close the gospel of Jesus Christ just because people are telling us to. Again, I just simply want to draw your attention to the, what we said at the beginning. For freedom. 
Christ has set us free. The offer on the table for you is sonship, daughtership, rather than slavery. Freedom rather than entrapment. So I'm wondering this morning, what that thing is that you're holding on to in your life, that you refuse to surrender, that's keeping you from walking in the goodness and the grace of Jesus Christ. You just refuse to let it go. I can't do it, Aaron. I can't do it. I can't surrender this thing. I can't let it go. Because if I confess this and if I give this up, what are people going to say? What's my family going to say? What's going to happen to me if I let this thing go? Freedom. 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 Here's what's funny to me. I think a lot of us, Christ has broken the shackles from your life, but you're still holding on to the chains. And Christ is saying, I cut the shackles off. Let go of the chains. 